The voices that are represented in history are the voices of the elites. The stories told are about the elites. How can we restore lost voices and open up new perspectives on history? This is Medea Vox. I'm Magnus Nilsson, professor of comparative literature, specializing in working-class literature. I'm here with Caroline Steedman, professor emerita at the Department of History at the University of Warwick in the UK, who recently gave a talk at the Creating the City conference in Malmö. Caroline Steedman has focused much of her research on histories of the working class in the city and of groups and individuals who are not easily contained in standard categories of inquiry. Carolyn, in the Q&A after your talk, someone asked you about your method of trying to place yourself in the position of him or her who does not have a voice in the public sphere. How do we learn to understand what the world looks like from that position? Um, well, I think we read a lot of novels from a very early age. I think that is... I wouldn't call it a method. Um, I'd call it a kind of understanding of how to go about reading texts. And like everyone of my generation and schooling, I have read an enormous quantity of novels from the highest to the lowest. And I read novels all the time. And novels are the technology that developed in the 18th century to allow readers to imagine others. So if there's a way of doing it, I would recommend the novel. <laughs> I was very much hoping you would say that uh, <laughs> coming from literary studies, because the novel, of course, is a kind of text where you have voices and we have narrative perspectives and where you are forced into other positions than those you um, normally occupy. So would you say then that it perhaps is a problem that in our time uh, not all of our students are reading all that many novels. I don't think most people have read a great many novels. I think it's a fairly esoteric pursuit. But at, at different times in different systems of education, novels are forced upon you. And I think in, in my time of education between, say, 8 and 18 and then at university. Novel reading was a primary focus of the English curriculum, and I experienced it. I think it's far less likely that a student now, a school student, would be introduced to the novel in that way, at least in, in, in the UK. So I wouldn't like to condemn a whole generation for something they've never been asked to do or invited to do. But I think it is always something worth looking at in different national education cultures to see the forms of literature in the broadest sense that are introduced to adolescents and what the implications of that are. I think it's a very useful route into different cultures of inquiry in different societies. And perhaps we could do as university teachers uh, more. If we notice that our students may not be extremely well read in the classic novel, uh, perhaps we could uh, introduce novels in the curriculum and make that a part, thereby making up for the, for the possible deficit. Um, but what about um, the other aspect of literature, the writing of literature? Because if reading a novel could help you 
gets better at adopting the positions of others. What about writing? Well, writing does. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this as I speak. Writing provides a very different kind of cognitive activity, doesn't it? And involves a different set of psychological processes. But before I could even start to think about that question, again, I would look at different educational cultures and the regimes of self-writing that small children are introduced to. I mean, there is a lot of historical information on that topic about what children acquiring literacy are encouraged to put on the page in the 18th century and the 19th century And I'm particularly interested in post-Second World War Britain and the kind of creative writing movement, which was not called that at the time, but quite clearly was a creative writing movement, where a whole two generations of small children were invited to tell the story of themselves in writing, in what used to be called their news books, you know, my news is a form of diary writing. And every morning for several years in lots of education authorities, the first thing a child would write in their news book was what they did last night. So it would usually be, last night I went home, I had my tea, watched the telly and went to bed. (laughs) But it's a form of self-inscription. And... um, I think that is that process is much more open to historical view than is the question of reading because you have the material written evidence. It may be fragmentary, but it is there in some cases of what children wrote in the past. So for future historians, um, there are better sources than for present-day historians. Yes. And above all, perhaps more first-hand sources? Because in, in your talk, you referred to novels by Dickens and others, mm. and also other kinds of second-hand sources where child laborers were interviewed mm. and so. But today, perhaps people are writing more, publishing on blogs mm. and so yes. on. Could we do more to further improve uh, this, to get more material? Do we need to encourage people to write more? Could you see projects where we could sort of collect more material? You see, you you are speaking as an educationalist, aren't you, about the future. As a historian, I mean, the idea of creating a source or manipulating a circumstance or changing a circumstance so that there will be a different kind of record in the future is just, it's not really a concept in one's head We are so used to doing the best we can with what there is. That is the art and craft of historical practice, is to do the best you can with what there is. And so we become incredibly adept at picking out tiny little fragments of knowledge and information from completely unexpected documents and sources you would never dream were sources. And I think the whole emotional orientation is towards doing that. 
now as a different kind of person. I could, I could become a political thinker or an educational philosopher, and I could try and lay out a program for the creation of better, <laughs> for future records that are better than the ones we possess. But I, it's rather alien to me. The only thing I, I would say is never throw anything away. It's all useful. A shopping list is useful. A tiny fragment of writing. What, what you find in, in record offices and archives are just little, not even fragments. They're bits of fragments. They're stories that never started and will never finish. They're notes in the margin of some other kind of document. And if there is an art to it, it's not a method. I do believe it's an art. Well, it's a method and an art. It is to, it's to take the marginalia, the little bits and pieces, little bits of rubbish, and do something with them. So you tell a, a narrative. You make a narrative out of fragments. So you can see that the idea of writing a program for better records in the future feels a little... Alien. I can understand that. <laughs> but perhaps the historian of the future will face uh, another problem, a very different mm. problem. If today's historians deal in scraps and little pieces yes. or fragments, perhaps the sheer immensity of what mm. is being uh, written and recorded and stored today mm. will make it very hard. Yes. I think about that particularly, the overload of information. I've just finished my last book, which will be out in the autumn. It's um, called Poetry for Historians, a book I could never have written whilst I was a full-time um, historian in a university history department because it's kind of not history. But it's an attempt to make poetry matter to historians and to understand what kind of evidence is embedded the quality of evidence embedded in poetry as opposed to other forms of composition. And it is a lot to do with the poetry of W.H. Auden because, I don't know if you know, Auden wrote a series, a cycle of poems in the 1950s that are history poems. They're about the process of history. So part of the purpose of the book is to examine that. But at some point in the book, I discuss how very strange and alien the process of doing this with W.H. Auden has been because there is a tyranny of documentation. Historians are not used to this. I am not used to the number of books, the number of articles, the number of first-hand accounts of W.H. Auden Documents scattered in two dozen repositories on both sides of the Atlantic. I did not know how to even think about making my way through it because once a historian has chosen a topic or a topic has chosen a historian, you read everything there is. And you can read everything there is about, let's say, female harvest work in the 18th century or stocking makers' organisations in the early 19th. You can read everything that modern historians have written because your writing will be an intervention in that pre-1950 
existing story. You lead the narrative on. But with W.H. Auden, I did not know what to do. And I was reminded of what uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez says in his preface to um, the general in his labyrinth. Do you know the novel? I have not read it. But you, you know it's about the last campaign of Simon Bolivar uh, in his conquest of Nueva Granada. His last days, the general coming towards defeat and the north the Caribbean coast of Venezuela. And Marquez describes his panic when he realized how much there was on Bolivar, how very much there was, how much material, how many documents, how many historical accounts. He said he suffered blind panic as if he were wading through a swamp of unknown creatures that were assaulting him. He called it a tyrannically documented life. And Auden's life is tyrannically documented. He was only going to write about the last few months of this life as well, and he did not know what to do. And he tells the story of getting on the phone, this was pre-email days, getting on the phone to um, friendly historians in distant countries and saying, I'm in a panic, what do I do? And it seems that they all said to him, which of course is absolutely the advice I tried to give myself, get some file cards, write down information that you already know is going to help you tell the story you want to tell because you know already what you're going to tell that you don't know the details. And then once you've got these scraps of information on file cards, you can order them, you can tame them, you can shape them. And you will be leaving nine-tenths out, more than nine-tenths out. So I think historians of the future will just have to do that. They will have to use the equivalent of file cards, just wade through that swamp of material, because they will already know from the work of other historians what it is they want to tell. It's a vague idea. They don't know the details, but they already have a proto-narrative, a, a proto-explanation in their minds that, that will help them order it on cards. Actually, I use a, a computer computer-searchable database program, but file cards are just as good. So. <laughs> so already now we do have the problem with, on the one hand, a few voices being heard, and on the other hand, sometimes an overload of, of information that we need to mm. uh, find a way through. This conference uh, that we are currently attending is about uh, the city uh, and about memory and identity and so on and so forth. And I would like to focus in on, on that topic mm -hmm. a bit. Very often, when we construct identities as city dwellers, we do so, as with all identities, through exclusion. So you have the people born here and the people coming to the city. You have the people who are city dwellers and you have those who are not. Oftentimes those exclusions are harmless, at other times they can be quite problematic. How do we find a way around the problems? How can we look at those city identities without 
necessarily ending up in, in, in problematic companies of those who want to exclude others or make hierarchies between the cosmopolitan urbanism and the backward countryside. Well, I think you are going to think that I'm not answering your question, but I do think one answer lies in the technique of writing you use and the particular form that is a piece of historical writing allows you to hold those contradictions together and to actually place the absences in your narrative of which you are aware to place those narratives on the page and I think that it's a simple technique of the use of the footnote you have to have footnotes not end notes not that stupid modern practice of having no notes at all and just a vague list of references at the end, but footnotes, so that the reader can see where the story has come from, what has been left out, what is included, so that your narrative, in which you can say all these things and acknowledge that you are dealing with questions of exclusion as well as inclusion, so that your narrative shows its footwork, shows its underneath, shows where it's coming from and you look incredibly honest and full of integrity if you're doing that as well. So I would make your question a highly practical one, which is one of the presentation of writing and the uh, techniques, technologies of presentation on the printed page or on the screen. And for me, uh, something about the past that calls itself history, that doesn't show where it's coming from, is not a historical narrative. It's some other kind, can be wonderful, but it's some other kind of narrative about the past. It's not a historical narrative. I hope I don't sound too exclusive. Uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, and I also think that it's interesting to, to look at sort of the mechanics of writing and, and the very practice of, of mm. doing research and not ignore sort of the handicraft mm. of, um, of it all. Uh, one, one thing that I found very interesting in, in your talk this morning was that you said that you have sh uh, chosen not to write about London. Uh, yes. And you have your reasons for, for doing so. Uh, I also think it can be quite interesting not to write about London and places like London because not only do we only have access to the voices of the elites uh, in some cases, uh, the topics are also usually chosen uh, cities, then we have London, Berlin, New York, yes. the average sized yes. German town, Bulgarian town gets very little attention. Would you like to comment on that? Well, that's big. And um, of course, it's in a way, there is much more documentary evidence about New York, Berlin and London. There were more people, there were more poor people asking for relief more criminality, so more police records. There are more records about the everyday life of the low, of the working class and of paupers from big cities than there are from provincial ones, certainly um, in the UK. But of course, I mean, there are a highly particular record. They're a record of the poor being a nuisance to elite people and communities. The reason why I don't, I've never been particularly interested in London is that it's, you know, its economic structure is so different from the rest of the country. 
there, there are no major industries, least of all agriculture, and there's so much movement of population in and out, and there is so much work on London. Every graduate student in the world seems to choose to work. That's an exaggeration, of course. There is an enormous amount of historical research on the everyday life of ordinary Londoners from the 15th century through to the modern day because the records are so available um, and there are so many of them. And you could go on finding new topics forever. It's much harder to do for a place like Birmingham or Manchester or Hull. Or, but it's, it's more interesting because there's... You, you see, the, the other factor in historical writing, which is a constraint and a joy, is that you have to deal with the historiography. It wouldn't, again, it wouldn't be a piece of historical writing unless you a addressed the field. What's already been said, you know, said it's right and there's a little bit wrong with it, and here you are telling a new, giving a new account which doesn't discount the old ones, it just adds to them and makes them... Uh, more reflective of reality. And if you work on a, such a well-worn topic as London, think of your historiography chapter. It would last the length of a book. There's so much already been said that you have to take into account and make the basis of your, your narrative. But I don't think I'm answering your question about other places. Um. To some extent, yes. Uh, maybe I could uh, add something to the question. Mm. In your talk, you open with telling us about a novel you read mm. uh, as, as a young girl, a novel set in South London, mm. and not in the North London, mm. where novels, you said, are usually set. In Malmö, uh, we also read novels, and they are more often set in London, North or South, than they are in Malmö. They're more often set in New York. So what I was getting at was that there's this hierarchy of cities. Yes. And when we think about city life, mm. the city... Uh, the cities in which we actually live are very often marginalized and representations yes. of other cities uh, stand mm. in for our everyday experiences. Yes, that's really interesting. But of course, I grew up in a city that was represented <laughs> massively in literature. So it's a great relief to find myself, well, I've lived now most of my life in places that don't figure all that much in literature. And I much prefer it because I feel that I'm free to find alternative narratives. I'm not so constrained by the past of other historians writing. Incidentally, you know, on this question of cities and narratives, we're going to have to look up some names later to make this work. But I've done two sorts of research for my visit to Malma. First, I listened to a Radio 4 comedy series in the uh, 6.30 comedy slot on BBC Radio 4. I shall miss tonight's episode. It's called The Cold Swedish Winter. And the plot line is about a London stand-up comedian who has married a Swedish woman and on her insistence gone home to far, 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 far north. It's a town in the far north to live there so they can have their baby in Sweden and bring it up as Swedish. And it's a comedy about him learning the ways of Sweden and the habits and manners of Swedish people. That's been interesting. But for something that told me about Malmo, did you know that there's a series of murder mysteries by a Scottish writer? 
I think, called Torquil McGavin, but I can look it up in a moment. They're all set in Malmo, where his son lives, and he has lived for some time. And they all begin with M. So there's murder in Malmo, meet me in Malmo, mayhem in Malmo. And I have um, constructed a map of Malmo from, you know, various murders that have taken place around the city. What I find so endearing and interesting about these books is that I think the... You know, the author is being very... Ca- I think they're very well written. They are well written. But he's being very canny. In Britain, there's um, a whole series of uh, town-based, city-based um, detective and murder mystery stories. So for Glasgow, Edinburgh, Liverpool, Manchester, and, of course, London, though to a lesser extent London, where the city is rehistoricized through this battle between law and crime and the personalities involved and this guy knows this obviously knows this literature and has just looked around the world for a city that hasn't got a major crime fiction um, series set in it and has a son living in here and has spent time here and done his research and um, produced 12 novels set in Malmö. This is very interesting but indeed. But I'm going to... Ha- oh, I haven't got my Kindle on me. But just type Malmö into Amazon Kindle and you will find this series. I will certainly do that. <laughs> it's interesting because Swedish crime has been exported all over the world. Yes. Uh, but Malmö has not yet been the setting yes, for, for these crime stories. Yes. Well, it is now, mm-hmm. but from a British perspective. That's very interesting. So I would really love to talk to somebody Swedish who can tell me if this Scot has got it even halfway right. (laughs) We will have to read and uh, come back to you. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of voices and the voices heard and not heard and the work of the historian as someone who from scraps and pieces tried to recreate uh, voices using his or her imagination trying to put him or herself in someone else's shoes. What would be the outcome of this if we are uh, successful? Would it be a richer picture of the past, filling in the missing voices, or would it be a different picture altogether? For whom? You see, I think you need to think about the audiences for history. You know, it simply doesn't matter to most people. They have a perfectly usable and workable account of the past and their family's past that does them very well for the purposes of everyday life. Why do they need academic history? Of course, academic history feeds into those everyday narratives. It provides a kind of bedrock of information about certain things that really did happen in the past on which personal and family and community narratives are constructed. And I am interested in that um, in that set of questions. I don't know if you know the work of the uh, um, the Finnish historian Jorma Kalela. No, I can't say. I, I would recommend it. I really would. It's pu- it's in Finnish and in English. It was published by Routledge in in the UK. He has this concept that he calls 
History in Society, with Dash's History in Society. Now, History in Society can arise out of academic history and the work of university history departments, but it's the kind of everyday exchange about the past that everybody takes part in, including professional historians when they're ordinary people, and it's it's made in childhood through the processes of education. It's made among film audiences and television audiences and novel readers and bloggers and everybody who contributes in some way to the public sphere. And it is an entity called history and society. And for him, the really important questions are to see how that works, to understand how that works and different national cultures and so on. Um, I've forgotten your question now. Well, the question relates to uh, the voices and uh, what kind of, of, of version of history we, we, we are trying to create. Because there's another Finnish historian, Heike Ullikangas, who published a very influential book on the civil war, mm-hmm. uh, pointing out that there was a story told about the civil war and it was the story of the winners. And he dug out uh, the story from, from the losing side, mm. the red side. Thereby, he gave a richer mm. version. Uh, but perhaps the story of the losing side was the story of the majority. Yes. Um, you made the distinction in your talk between uh, the elites mm. uh, and the others. The others outnumber the elites 100 to 1, I guess. And I sometimes think that if we have a version of history where both voices are mm. given equal weight, then that too will be a very strange mm. history. Almost impossible to write, I I would imagine. Particularly if you've been trained up in the social history tradition of Edward Thompson and the making of the English working class. Of course, the great criticism of that school of thought is that it pays no attention at all to those who were in power and who actually framed the events that the poor are responding, the poor and the working class are responding to. You would have to be a rather peculiar human being, I think, if you could, if you were able to write a history from two very different perspectives. I conceive of history writing as some form of political allegiance with a small p, some form of political conviction. So I do. I mean, of course, I write. You can always see where I'm coming from, where I've taken my material from. I tell no, none of us tell lies, but it is written from a very particular perspective. And it is that perspective that shapes the narrative. The narrative could not hold it would break down, it would become something completely different if it... So perhaps we could say that sometimes we are more interested in other voices than in more voices. Yes. And there may be a danger in the concept of adding more voices mm. uh, yes. to the story. Yes. I would like to ask a question about today and the political situation we're mm. in uh, that relates to, to voices and whose voices are heard and told. Many people would argue that what we're experiencing today uh, with Brexit, with Donald Trump mm. and other things is sort of the revenge of those who feel that they have not been listened to. Mm -hmm. Those who do not live 
in those urban centers mm. that we like to study, but sort of countryside, working class, mm. the forgotten. And it's very easy to make these people the marchers. Can you relate this sort of analysis of, of contemporary politics to, to your research? I don't know if I can do that, but there's been so much discussion over the past few weeks on, in the British media of um, the idea of alternative history, alternative reality, alternative facts. In fact, Channel 4 television news had a whole week devoted to the alternative news as a kind of satire on newly emerging ideas of truth. You know, the famous statement of one of Trump's aides that the idea that there were four million people present at his inauguration march was an alternative figure, an alternative set of facts, you know, equally valid as the other one. Um, so th this has been explored a lot. And there's been a lot of uh, despairing, absolutely despairing commentary from the political and journalistic elite in Britain and I think in the US because they're on British television every night complaining about their own working class and how they're fooled and dupes. I mean, from the British perspective, I, apart from political positions and trajectories that I entirely disagree with and disapprove of and would do my best to argue someone out of, something that is going on in the wake of Brexit is that kind of low-level satire that runs through every level of British life, which is called having a laugh. He's only having a laugh. You know, you've got to laugh. That's another thing. You've got to laugh. You've got to laugh. What else can you do? It's also awful. You've got to laugh. And, you know, proud leavers after the referendum, those great swathes of the country that voted to leave the EU, they tell this story to camera. It, it's not even deliberate because they know so well that the journalists understand that they're all playing a part called having a laugh. And that's how Trump is possibly interpreted in large sections of the uh, British, among large sections of the British public. You know, they, you know, he's an idiot, the guy. The man's mad. Maybe he'll blow us up. You've got to laugh, haven't you? And it is a finger in the face of the metropolitan elite. The whole of the news media... You know, but it's very knowing and it's quite clever and it's not desperate, stupid people who would think otherwise if only they were explained too nicely about political realities and what the EU really was. It is a political position, but it's conducted with what, um, was it Benjamin who called it, who, who used, oh, the weapons of the week, James C. Scott. This is one of the weapons of the week. You know, the great anthropologist, that, that um, laughing at it, half laughing at it, making sure that no one quite knows whether you're laughing at it or not. It's a form of power that you can take on, even in really quite desperate circumstances. And, 
you know, what's the alternative? You know, just don't listen to the news at the moment because it's just going on all the time, <laughs> everywhere. And uh, so, so we have now managed to connect the question of voices and whose voices mm. are, are heard to both the need to lead, mm. read more novels and to, to Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, I think that's we've a, done a, very well. That's pretty impressive. I would say, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you.